This is KRMG In-Depth, the podcast. I'm Russell Mills. Thanks for listening. It's no secret that homelessness, depression, and suicide affect our veterans at much higher rates than the general public. Recently, a company founded largely by vets has taken a new approach to tackling those problems. The basic idea is to use data analysis to identify people within an organization who may need help before it's too late to help them. Recently, I spoke with Colonel Michael Hudson, United States Marine Corps retired. He is vice president of Veterans Behavioral Health Data Collection at ClearForce. That's the company collecting that data and trying to put it to good use. Here's our conversation in full. We're on with uh, Colonel Michael Hudson, United States Marine Corps retired. You know, they tell me there's no such thing as an ex-Marine colonel. Is that true? That is true. Uh, retired works just fine. <laughs> retired, but still working hard and working with vets, um, not just Marines, but of, of all stripe. And your mission is dealing with uh, veterans uh, in terms of, of mental health and, and homelessness. And we're seeing a troubling trend in recent years. I think, I think it was down for a while, uh, but we're seeing, and maybe it, the pandemic, or I don't know what's going on. And that's why I talk to people like you who actually have their finger on the pulse. So first, Colonel, thank you for joining us. And secondly, could you tell us a little bit about ClearForce? And that's the organization that you're with there. And I think you said you're in D.C. Yeah, that's correct. We're up in the, in the just outside of the Washington, D.C. area in uh, in Vienna, Virginia, is um, where we're based out of. And, what, and ClearForce is in, the, uh, is in the risk space. So what we do, the company is uh, looks supports organizations to try to pick up on individuals who are potentially uh, struggling. And we look at indicators that you would bucket under concerns in this case, like for suicide, uh, toxic behavior, like some of the insider threat in the security lens. So what we use is is technology that's anchored on uh, privacy and compliance as a way to uncover early indicators in the social determinant space of individuals that are potentially on a trajectory. Uh, that would take them outside of the norms of the organization. So what we're doing in the suicide space and is using the same technology that were deployed in the commercial space, uh, and we're bringing it crosswalking, if you will, to work uh, with veterans to get out in front of early drivers to try to pick up on and highlight who would benefit from an outreach. So if I was talking to fellow, fellow leaders, I'd say, hey, consider this like a commander's tool. That's what we do. Look for ways within your population to identify those uh, that have indicators of risk. Don't label them, uh, don't ostracize them, but understand these are the individuals that you should probably be talking to today or having people within your organization engage with. All right, so I want to say that back to you to make sure I'm understanding it. This is sort of the ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure approach. If we can identify these folks and and get them help or get them support before they spiral out of control, we can keep them as you know, productive members of society. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if some people ask me, so w- w- that seems like a lot of words. What's the easiest way to think about it? Probably the easiest way to think about what we do is think about like a check engine light on a car, right? So when that goes on in your car, you don't know which of the 1000 moving pieces in that engine is problematic. All you know is that, Hey, I have to hook the engine up and I got to do some level of diagnostic and I got to determine which of the parts I need to uh, work on. Same thing. If you think about people in it themselves, there's really no way for individuals today, uh, unless you're really paying attention to pick up on someone who could be struggling, right? If someone is under that 
great deal of pressure. So that's exactly what we're doing is figuring out using the science and the technology anchored on privacy and compliance to identify individuals who would benefit from an outreach. So you made the transition from a military career to back to private citizen. And I'm, I have talked to a lot of veterans over the years from World War II through Vietnam, through the Gulf, you know, and not one of them has ever told me, oh, it was a piece of cake. I just, you know, I just put on my, I put on my T-shirt, took off my uniform, put on my T-shirt and went on with my day. It, it's not that easy. What are some of the challenges that these men and women face just simply trying to get back into the flow of, I guess, normal life? That's a really good question, and I think that's that's where a lot of effort has been placed, uh, and the government's done a really good job with what we call TAP, or Transition Assistance Program. But even with that type of support, as you transition out of the military, and this is whether you served in a combat deployment, uh, whether you were in a supporting role back here in the U.S., or even part of the National Guard and were deployed within the U.S. supporting um, you know mission sets there. The key is, from what my experience in talking to you know fellow people have gotten out is, you build these relationships and you understand that the power of the team in the military, regardless of the branch of service that you serve it. Uh, and then when you leave this kind of close knit group and then you transition back out, you run right into a population that has, you know, less than 7% of them are veterans. So your shared experience, uh, positive and potentially negative, it's hard to find individuals you can sit down and have that conversation with because they just don't have the same touch points. Right. So, I mean, if you think it right now at any, at any moment, here in the U.S., about 1% wears the uniform. So a significant population today will have a connecting file, potentially a friend, they'll know someone, a family member. Um, but a lot of us are several deviations away from our veterans. So when the veteran reintroduces themselves back in, in some cases, that can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, and then what you also see then as they move across, and I would strongly encourage you this, I mean, veterans are someone I would actively be seeking to hire. That's something for sure, because they are mission-focused, um, high levels of honor, courage, commitment. Um, these are individuals that I would absolutely bring into any organization. They play well with others. They're solid on the team. They're creative thinkers, solution-focused, uh, oriented, uh, and positive outcome players. But sometimes when you, when you come across, there is that kind of, I got to resync. if that makes sense. It does. That said, in recent conversations with um like the commander of the American Legion post and the VFW, they're really having a hard time getting younger veterans to get involved, to come on board. Um, why do you think that is? Is it just, uh, I don't know, a cultural difference generationally, or um, is it because the, the military, you know, the way the deployments work is different now than it used to be? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's it. That's a good question. So I'll offer, you know, an opinion, if you will. Um, I mean, when you like veterans of foreign wars, these, these are organizations I'm eligible for, right? So I think a lot of times what happens is we, we transition back out and we, 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 we're basically problem solvers on our own. Uh, we tend to, we have an issue, we figure out what the challenge is, and then we move in a direction to resolve it. Um, I think that um, what you're seeing in a lot of the younger veterans today in that demographic is, I mean, part of it is the sustained combat, right? We've been at war for 20 plus years, though the nation sometimes might not have that on their, their primary scan. Right. 
not like you finished a conflict, like so a, a world war ended. I'm not advertising we want any more large conflicts, by the way. But, you know, you had these periods where you had a, a large number of veterans transitioning out post a major conflict. Um, now you just have almost like a, a steady state. That's I think the number from the VA right now is about 200,000 um, veterans or, or military members transition into the veteran population each year. And so that can quickly, you know, dilute itself if you were to get diffused within the, the country at large. Um, and I think a lot of the younger people are, are, and veterans are, are starting to migrate towards other types of organizations. Something that, that I think is really encouraging is the number of entrepreneurs that are coming out. I mean, veteran-owned businesses that are, that are starting up, um, I think, is also another positive sign. Veterans are banding together go, hey, we solve riddles uh, in a forward-deployed environment. We can definitely solve them here in the U.S. So I think they're looking for more dynamic uh, activities potentially than just a place to um, sit down and, and, you know, share stories or a bond, if that helps. It does. It does. I know. I, I think it would. So let's talk a little bit about this last year, because um, you are uh, the person who set this up, I guess, who's also named Michael, confusingly, um, <laughs> sent me some information that says, um, that suicide among veterans in Oklahoma went up 44.4%. Now, it doesn't say during what period of time. Was that in a year, in 10 years? Do you know? Yeah, I think that's over time. And what that data is being pulled from, a lot of that is coming out of the VA reports. Um, and I, I would, we would quickly point out that that's going to be over time. I don't think that's a sudden spike. It's, it's, it's looking at kind of the rise. And what we've seen tragically in VA data over the last decade or so is we haven't yet flattened the curve. I mean, the VA is, is totally switched on. They got a lot of really, you know, smart people. They got resources from Congress and they're trying to get at this, uh, but they haven't been able to really flatten the curve with the exception of something that's interesting uh, is their reach vet program, uh, which I think is a data analytics program that is looking at veterans that are engaging with the VA health system. Um, they've seen some real good promise of that. In fact, the latest 2020 report showed a uh, decrease. So as overall rates of suicide went up in the veteran population for another year in a row, uh, the reach vet data showed a decrease. And um, we think that's positive because that's, that's kind of how we think that as you, I mean, if I anticipate your next question is how do, you, how do you get at that? We think that you have to change some of the current assumptions and the model that really puts the onus on the veteran to take the first step. And so what I mean by that is this, I mean, there is a really good awareness campaign, you know, be there. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, sharing information, positive stories um, and getting veterans, hey, see this, make it very easy for them to take that next step. But it's still on the veteran to pick up a phone, to knock on a door, to text someone. Um, we think you got to flip that. We think like ReachVet thinks about it. You got to use the social determinants of data, the key drivers that the science and the evidence points to at elevated levels of risk. And you want to go ahead and use that in such a way that you inform an outreach, um, you know, back to your comment about an ounce of prevention by a pound of cure. We think that's where the conversation needs to shift. So I've had a couple conversations with um, VA Secretary uh, Robert Wilkie, who, by the way, lived at Fort Sill in Oklahoma for a while. Uh, in fact, grew up in Oklahoma. Um, and, and one of the things that he, he talked about, I guess he's former VA secretary. Now I presume that Mr. Biden's putting a new person and I have 
honestly lost track of all the cabinet stuff. But um, one of the things that, that he talked about was um, the program to help veterans, you know, finance homes and how that has been just wildly successful over the last couple of years, uh, better than expectations. And that kind of helps eke away at the homelessness problem among veterans, which in turn would hopefully help alleviate some of the problems with, you know, depression and, and even suicide. Would, would, would that be, uh, would that be logical? Absolutely. And I, I think what, what you're hearing is this, and we, this just again goes back to how we think we should be talking about this and how we should be approaching this. And that is how do you empower a veteran? Right. So we shouldn't look at veterans and a lot of people will immediately have a conversation and go veteran suicide and they'll look at the veteran as something damaged or or in need. Right. The idea is what they need is need. Yes. Resources. They have the ability to solve in the military. uh, When we do things, we always prioritize. Right. Because there's never not always enough to go around for everybody. So you figure out who's the priority of effort. Right. Whether this is in training or in combat. And then you move resources to that that individual or that group to allow them to accomplish the task. So I think what the secretary was talking about, and again, my opinion is he's saying, Hey, we can help the veteran as they transition, get home ownership, right? Start to build that foundation, right? That then becomes not only an investment that can grow over time, but that's also a sense of accomplishment. What you see is that some of the really good protective measures, uh, both in, in the suicide, mental wellness, resiliency space, uh, anchor on some of these self-worth narratives. Hey, I, I have the ability to put a roof over my head. You know, I have an ability to to take care of me and my family. I think those are all very positive. And then you continue that. Now I have the ability to grow that. That's absolutely the right trajectory. So I, I 100% uh, agree with that line of thinking. All right. So you told me before we started recording that you are um, working with some organizations or some different entities here in Oklahoma. Um, and that would include the office of Senator James Mountain Inhofe. I believe you mentioned him by name. Yeah. So uh, we have, we've engaged with uh, Senator Inhofe and his staff, uh, Don Archer and uh, uh, Dan Holder have helped us kind of connect into some of the key movers in that state. And there's a lot of effort going on in Oklahoma. I mean, the senator's office, you can clearly just spend 10 minutes talking to them and recognize this is on the top of their to-do list. And they're looking for ways to move resources to organizations that can make a difference. They're focused on that. And I think that that's really awesome. Uh, also within there, you know, they introduced us some of the uh, people down at the Central Oklahoma University, uh, Mark Kinders and uh, Jai Chen Fu. They're doing some really focused studies on veterans in the uh, educational space as students. Again, looking at the same challenge of how do we pick up on early indicators of risk, right? We seem to, when people look at a, a veteran suicide tragically, is they then come back and they start going left and they go, hey, we, we should have seen that. Or they start engaging with people in their orbit and they start saying, wow, we could have been aware of that. The, a lot of the challenge you see out there is these data, data silos of excellence never get brought together or they never get got brought together in a single environment in real time. So you have disparate data that's moved without uh, ever being kind of correlated in a way to inform an outreach. Um, and I, you're also, uh, Aaron Ashworth, who's, uh, lead in your state effort and part of the governor's challenge down there. I mean, he switched on as well and is doing a lot of work around data now. 
uh, and how they want to think about that. He's starting to figure out how to cascade that into a useful plan. Had a conversation with them uh, earlier this week. So they're engaged, too. I, there's a lot of energy going on right now in Oklahoma to get this. And we're just glad to be part of the conversation and engaging with those organizations. We've been talking with uh, Colonel Michael Hudson, who um, a retired member of the United States Marine Corps. He said 30 years you were in the in the Corps. That's that's a hell of a career, but he hasn't slowed down. He's working on veteran mental health and with a focus on early risk detection. So I want to circle back on that one more time because I think this is the kind of the key point here, um, unless I'm just sleeping through this entire thing, which is that you, you, right now the onus is on the veteran, is on the individual, if they think they're having problems, to go out and find help. Whereas it would be way more beneficial both to them and to society at large, one could posit, if we could identify folks, you know, who, who may potentially have problems before they develop into life changing, you know, out of control situations like homelessness and, and depression and suicide. Am I, am I hitting on the right notes there? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and one of the things when you start talking about, and we specifically think it's in the this, this social determinant space, and this is anchored on the work the CDC and the VA and DOD have all done, looking at known drivers uh, that basically work against your protective factors. And you have to think about this through two lenses. There are some like critical events. This happens, and that's a lot too much pressure for the individual to handle, and they go into a dark place. Or there's just sustained pressure over time that drives them down and makes them more susceptible to a, a, a negative outcome. And so both of those can be detectable. And it's, it's a lot like when you think about some of the leading efforts, this gatekeeper training, you may have heard that where people are saying, hey, you should you know, pay attention. These are the signs you should look for. If you see these signs in your friend, your buddy, uh, you know, your, your, your wingman, family member, um, you should ask some questions. You should kind of absolutely move into that space and see how you can help and then direct them or vector resources to them, right? So there's already a thought to do that. But we're thinking is a lot of that then is just it's hard to scale that if it's one to one eyeball to eyeball. Is there a way then to use technology and data that first and it has to start here, has to start with compliance, has to start with privacy and it has to start with trust. So we're not advocating a big data solution. We think that's too intrusive. We think that's just actually going to be counterproductive. We think the way to approach that is like you would approach the military member that they're used to is, hey, our goal here is to get you the resources and the time you need them to accomplish the task. And we want to be part of the solution, narrowly focused on that. And that's how we think we can support the organization. I think those are the conversations you're seeing in Oklahoma. So I mentioned some of the work they're doing with data at OCU is, is right in that wheelhouse. So that's exactly where I think the conversation needs to go. Well, I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation, and um, I, I feel like I know a little bit more about you and your organization. And I feel like um, you know, this this is an approach that has that looks like it's promising. It, it looks like something that would be, gosh, well, I, I preventative. I, I mean, I just keep going back to we we sort of like a, a paradigm of our entire medical system where we wait until somebody's sick and then we try to fix them. And, and you're seeing a huge shift in this country towards uh, preventative care and health maintenance and outcomes-based health care, right? To where, uh, gee, if we can keep people healthy <laughs> rather than let them get sick and then try to fix them, we're going to save a ton of money and keep people alive longer. And it's this is a very similar sort of paradigm, yeah? 
Yeah, 100%. I think that you're exactly right. So if you think about reinforcing resiliency in the individual, when they, the services themselves, we all struggle with that because, I mean, suicide cuts across, I mean, every group or bucket that you'd want to describe, right? You're going to have that as a challenge or a risk in there. I mean, it's in the DOD space as well. And what you look at that is the goal here is to develop mental uh, resiliency, right? How do you help the individual deal with the pressures and stress? How do you then also support the organization that can support the people? Now we have this environmental conversation, right? So now we're expanding it. But the key in all of this, we think, is flipping the model. We have to find a way that we can reach out in a private, secure way to support a veteran early, back to your ounce of prevention. I think it's exactly right. And do that with an empowerment model and to get them to move forward. Because again, I go back to how I started this. I mean, veterans are someone I'd have on my team in spades. Um, they are focused on getting it done. I mean, all that stuff I described before, I won't go through it again, but that's exactly uh, where we want to go is unlocking uh, data in a way that would empower a veteran uh, all built around this concept of trust. I really appreciate your time, um, Colonel, and, the, and it's really interesting stuff. And I would like to circle back with you uh, here in the near future, if possible. You know, ping me or, or have uh, Michael too, as I shall call him, because I can't remember his last name. <laughs> ping me, and you know, let's go, a couple months down the road. Let's let's circle back and see if if we're making some progress. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely a, a, a good thing and uh, more than happy to uh, to engage. This okay. is something that's important to not only me, and I didn't even get a chance to – I mean, the, the, the company I'm, I'm with here, Clear Force, uh, I mean, it's, it's got a pretty, pretty decent military uh, pedigree just from jump. I mean, it was founded under Gen General Jones, who was a commandant of the Marine Corps and President Obama's first national security advisor. You got General Michael Hayden, ran the CIA, uh, NSA on board, um, Lieutenant Gina Grosso, who ran the Air Force uh, – suicide, sexual assault programs. Um, you know, myself, there's a couple other veterans on the team. So it really does have veteran DNA uh, baked right into it. And you guys are doing important work and it's much appreciated. Thank you again for the time and uh, stay safe out there. All right. Yeah, same. I appreciate it. Same to you, sir. All right, brother. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to KRMG In-Depth, the podcast. I'm always looking for stories about the people, places, and politics of Oklahoma. I'm easy to find on Facebook, or you can always email me and the entire KRMG News team. The email address is news at krmg.com. I'm Russell Mills. Thanks for the listen. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection. The lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.